everyone. To the CavsCorner.com podcast, CavsCorner.com, your source for Virginia sports. I am Brad Franklin, publisher of CavsCorner.com, coming to you live from the place where Franklin Estates in the west end of Richmond where the snow has, I don't know, has it stopped totally, kind of stopped, mainly stopped. Um, anyway, uh, it is Wednesday, uh, March the 21st, and yet it is snowing. We won't talk about that. But what we will talk about is obviously the end of Virginia's basketball season. Uh, Phony and I touched on a lot of stuff on Monday, but I'm really interested to get Dave and Ferber's thoughts now as they've had roughly six, almost six days, a little less than a week, obviously, since uh, since the loss to UMBC to sort of process everything. Um, and then after we have some of that discussion, we'll get into uh, spring football, which starts uh, next week. Um, so before we uh, get started, let's go around and introduce everybody up in uh, Fishersville. David Spence is back on the show. How are you, my friend? I'm better than Friday night, <laughs> despite despite the 11 inches of snow on the ground. Um, who Dave's on the board at Who Dave's on Twitter? Man, you got 11 inches of snow. That's crazy. Yeah. Up in Arlington, uh, Justin Ferber's also on the show. How much snow did you get, man? I am doing all right, and uh, we got five inches of snow, something like that. Just cleaned off my car. We're good to go. Back. Did you business. just like? Did you just like fall over or something right before you started talking? Because that was pretty great. I don't know what I don't know what no, happened no. over there, but oh, okay. No. Uh, Cast corner. I think. Uh, <laughs> Cavs Corner, also on Twitter, Cavs underscore Corner. Great place at our in-game updates, content items, and the occasional witty banter. I say also on Twitter, and I don't think either one of you gave your Twitter handles that time. I did. So, Oh, you did? Okay, good. All right, so it's been a little I less than a week. It. Yeah, you did. Um, been a little less than a week uh, since the Cavaliers lost to the Retrievers. Um, as I said on radio today, uh, I, I don't think any of us uh, were prepared for that we were not we it's i think for a lot of folks myself and still included uh we 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 sort of transitioned to this weird like um i can't believe that sort of happened and every day there's some sort of weird reminder that it oh yeah it actually did happen um as you guys have gone through the last however many days since that game ferber let's start with you what's has it become a reality to you yet? Does it still feel like that's the thing that actually didn't happen? Um, what's what, what what what's the what's the time since the game been like for you? Well, I mean, during the game, the way the game kind of played out, it kind of allowed for. Um, I'm kind of stealing this from Sean Doolittle, who was on the radio up here in DC yesterday. It kind of allowed you to go through the five stages of grief during the game. Um, you know, it just the way that it played out, it wasn't like they got shocked at the buzzer or there was like a big late rally or anything like that. You kind of got to accept what was happening with, you know, in the last 10 minutes of the game. So by the time the game had ended, I pretty much, you know, accepted that it was going to happen. And um, obviously it was history in the making and, you know, UMBC deserves a lot of credit for the way that they played. And um, it was shocking to see. I definitely didn't anticipate it coming in, but um I kind of wish I had said it last week on the podcast, and I definitely told you guys during the game that, you know, when I was doing the preview for, uh, you know, UMBC, I, I kind of looked at their team and said, you know, this doesn't seem like a 16 seed. Um, I didn't think they were, like, really, really good or anything. Um, but they did have some guys that could score. They had a lot of wins this year. They hadn't really lost back-to-back games. Um, they had the weird Albany loss, but I mean, everything that I saw kind of pointed me towards like they might be kind of dangerous, but I figured that UVA wouldn't have any problems with them anyway. So I didn't want to make people seem like they should be worried about something happening. Um, obviously that's how it played out. And, uh, I mean, the time since the game has kind of given me more time to reflect on maybe what they could have done differently, uh, what UMBC did well, 
uh, if there's anything that you can take from this. Um, but as far as like the, the grief or shock or, or upset, you know, whatever emotion that you want to throw at it, uh, I think all of that's passed <laughs> for me at this point. Dave, with I, I want to ask a similar but somewhat different question for you. What the reaction that you've seen? Not we don't want to talk about the the media types or the nat or anybody. I'm, I'm talking about specifically for Virginia fans. H- has it been as bad as you expected it to be? Where what's what's that reaction been like in your opinion that other people have had, other fans have had? to this loss it was different you know i um friday night was tough and you know as most of you guys know i you know i own a sporting goods shop so saturday morning bright and early i was in talking to customers and not too many regular customers don't know where my allegiance lie when it comes to comes to college sports so you know you guys think monday morning was bad imagine saturday morning <laughs> at ten thirty. um what was amazing to me, though, is I had probably half a dozen customers that are, I would say, on the level of fanhood that I am, and every one of them was decked out in Virginia garb on Saturday. Um, now, the amount of crap talking that came from non-Virginia fans, whether it's Carolina, Duke, or Tech fans we see, it, it, it was it was high. It, it was a long Saturday, and when, when I closed the door Saturday evening, it's it was basically I was... 10 minutes into the second half again, emotionally, like it was a long day listening to all that stuff, but I was kind of impressed with just the average Virginia fan. You know, they love Tony Bennett. They, they understand big picture stuff. Um, you know, I, I think it's a little different when you, when you get down to that level, you know, to the guy you're talking to who, who's obviously you can see it in his eyes, you know how much it hurts, but you know, it's not like you're going to throw your Virginia stuff away and be another, you know, become a tech fan or a Carolina fan overnight. It's part of your story now. Um, you got two. You, you can't change it, so you either embrace it and laugh it off and move on, or or you don't. Um, embracing it Saturday was a lot harder than, than I anticipated it would be, but I, I was kind of impressed with with the guys I talked to. And I mean, the very first customer that walked in the door Saturdays were Virginia stuff. Um, I was too. That's <laughs> just the way it is. Um, I, what I find interesting has been the, the sort of meta commentary in the days since that's idea, you know, um, whether it's, you know, a columnist ripping Virginia saying that basically they're never going to do it and da, 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 And I'm like, dude, you know, there was a time when we were all alive when, you know, the Boston Red Sox were never going to win a world series, you know, they were cursed. And then it was, oh, the Chicago Cubs are never going to win a World Series. They're they're cursed. Um, now, granted, those teams went through a lot of different uh, regimes and um, whatnot, and different coaches and whatnot. But um, I guess managers. I shouldn't say coaches for for baseball. But I just think it's just really interesting to me to see the reaction among certain segments of the, both the college basketball world and just the sports world in general. Um, I did think that as the days have gone on, that folks have focused more on, and especially after UMBC loss, focus more on UMBC's um, kind of, uh, um, seller, excuse me, their, their achievement rather than focusing on UVA's, uh, you know, loss. What I find super interesting too, is that 
I we we had a conversation among the three of us, and I kind of want to bring that to the podcast about whether this was worse than the Syracuse loss in in the Elite Eight. And I think for Dave, it's if I'm if I'm wrong, if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly, either one of you guys, you can chime in. But my recollection was that for Dave, this was worse. Ferber and I thought that the the Syracuse loss was worse, in part because of the way it happened. You know, Virginia was up in that game, and then obviously lost, and because they were close to a Final Four, which is sort of a um, you know a hump that you're trying to get over. Um, as 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 we think about sort of where this all is right now um do we think that let me let me ask this a different way how um how how will this stick with you it, will this be something that you think you think about all season long will it be something that as you creep closer to march it'll come into your mind dave like what what's what's your kind of gut tell you about how this is going to sit with you over the next you know eight ten months <laughs> i mean it's going to suck man i mean you, you can't hide from that you you can try to pretend it's not going to but but it's going to um you know the, we were kind of joking about it before we came on air but you know i kind of reached this point with with tony and the program where look we haven't had great march success we run into michigan state and florida a couple times and obviously the syracuse loss but you know it's not like they had this happen before so it was the hand wringing when we came to basketball had, had virtually disappeared now maybe that's all on me maybe now i can guarantee you it's not going to disappear moving friday night half you know halfway through the second half on um hand ringing's back baby so get used to it it's maybe that's what i need as a virginia fan um but as far as the way it's going to stick on me like you're never going to stop hearing about this it's going to be Whatever seed Virginia gets next year in the tournament, whether it's a one, two, even, you know, it doesn't matter. If they make the tournament next year, when they announce their name, it's going to come up. They're going to talk about it all season. When they're on the road next year, you're going to see signs about it. It's a part of our existence now. It's a, it is what it is. It hurts. And the reason for me, the reason it hurts more for me than the Syracuse loss is just because of the, I don't want to call it futility, but the lack lack of success Tony's had in the, in the in the big dance up to now if this had we were coming to a point where a one was going to be just be to 16 um you know you get four six you mean that the other way you mean that the i other mean way 16 around. was yeah finally a one was gonna be six uh, yes we're reaching a point where 16 was going to be to one right um because it's really hard especially with the play-in game now because essentially you have six 16 seeds um so there's a couple that aren't created equal and we've seen 15 seeds win in a couple years there's you know, I can't remember the number, 13 now, I think, that 15 seeds have beaten twos. So it was going to happen. It's just the thing that sucks for Virginia is it happened to them, and it kind of punctuates their story of postseason droughts. If it had happened to Duke, it would have been an indictment of, you know, this is what happens when you have one and dones, but he'll be back. If it had happened to Kentucky, same story. If it happened to Sean Miller in Arizona, it would have been, well, all the post, you know, if they were a one, it would have been all the postseason, you know, the off-court drama was the issue. But Virginia, it's a, uh, it's a system issue that means he'll never win. Um, so that's what makes it so hard for all of us. Like, you go back to that Syracuse game. If Virginia makes that Final Four, like, Friday and Friday night still happens, it stings, but it doesn't sting like it does now. Um, so it, that's why, you know, Friday nights is always going to be tougher for me. It's going to be – Chaminade happened in 80, what, 82? You still hear about it. Um, now it's not like 
the average, you know, the casual basketball fan probably doesn't know about it, but the good basketball fans do. But the casual ones know about this, and it'll be remembered for a long time. And if you don't have thick skin, if you can't laugh it off, if you, you know, if Virginia continues to struggle and never does anything in the in the Sidley tournament, it will define the Benedict era. But luckily for us, knock on wood, we have more time for that to change. Um, what before 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 I let you answer the question, I, I want to make a point. What I think is interesting too is that this this game was in so many ways like the perfect sort of. Um, merger right it was like several storms that sort of formed together right not only did virginia shoot it poorly not only did the was the offense stagnant credit to umbc's defense not only did uh virginia kind of continue to try to get its guards going rather than you know change things up um not only was deandre hunter hurt not only did the defense was the defense unable to get stops not only did umbc hit a bunch of shots that Typically, they probably wouldn't hit. They scored 20 points in the first half of, of their NCAA tournament. They scored 21 points in the third half of their NCAA tournament. They scored 22 points, I believe, in the th- in the fourth half of their NCAA tournament. And they scored 53 points in the uh, second uh, half of their NCAA tournament. That's a team that got hot at the right time, got confident at the right time, and and just made the most of it. But, like, not just all of those things, right? Think about it like this. Virginia didn't go in as a team that everybody was doubting in March. Virginia went in as the number one team in the country and the number one overall seed, right? And they were playing the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, right? I mean, it was in so many ways. Like, if you, if you wrote all these things down, Central, I mean, uh, the, 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 the Hollywood people would reject it. it just, it's too on the nose. Like, it's just too perfect. I mean, the, ki- the kid who's... Who 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 basically led the team? Whatever his parents are are UVA graduates. Like what else about this story? What else about this situation? Seems like it was manipulated in in, in a um it, it, in like a um in like a tube. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just so weird that all of these things happened and all of these aspects of this loss uh, were were reality. Uh, Ferber, I want to pose that same question to you. Then, what? How do you feel like you'll carry this for the next however many months? When do you feel like it'll become a thing? Will it stay on your mind even during the off season? What's your What's your thought process? I mean, it'll it'll be with me now every time they go into the tournament, and I cannot imagine that it won't be with this coaching staff. Um, as much as they have got this reputation over the years for, I don't want to say futility in March, but I think that's how people on the outside see it. Um, I think people closer to the program know it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Uh, but I, I think they won't ever go into the postseason again without thinking about this. And I think in some ways that might be a good thing going forward. Um, with this specific group of players, uh, I don't know how that affects them going forward. For me, I mean, it's it's over and done with. Obviously, we'll hear about it forever. Um, you know, Like I said the other day when I was talking to you guys, I think eventually over time it'll be more about it'll the story will be more about what UMBC did um, than what Virginia did as far as losing the game. Um, I mean, like even the coverage over the weekend was more about you know what UMBC did and and kind of breaking through that wall that nobody seemed to be able to break through and and I knew eventually it would happen and I even joked last week with you guys that. Um, UVA was kind of destined to be the first team to lose to a 16. That's how I felt just because, and I didn't think it would be this year, but the reason I think that is because 
for one, I mean, you can you can disagree or not disagree, but the style of play and the tempo uh, and the limited number of possessions just increases the chance that a team can get hot and at least keep it close and just make it interesting. And they've been scared by a 16 in the past with Coastal Carolina. Um, and the, honestly, another, like, just as big of a component is I think UVA is going to continue to be dominant in the regular season, and they're going to continue to be one seeds. And to lose to a 16, you have to get a one seed first. So... I think that UVA kind of like there was a chance that it could have happened to them eventually if it didn't happen this year. But I honestly feel like kind of going back to your original question, um, I I think the Syracuse loss was worse for me f- for a number of ways. One, just the general like feeling I had when the game ended. Um, this one, I kind of I mean I was upset about it, but I I kind of was you know like I had accepted it. You know it was it was happening. It was over. Um, I was shocked, but I mean it's. It seemed to me like, you know, a, a disappointing way to end, uh, in a historic way to end a great season. But the Syracuse loss was like everything was right there in front of them. They were very, very close. They had the game in the bag. We we knew how Tony had dominated Syracuse teams in the past. That Syracuse team was a bubble team that got really lucky with the way things broke for them. Uh, they didn't have to play the two seed because Michigan State lost to the 15 seed. Um middle tennessee state so they didn't have to play like a really good team in that round and then in the sweet 16 they played gonzaga who i believe was a 10 seed and then it was like all right and then uva got the big lead on them but what made it worse for me i think was that everything was right in front of them and then also they were losing so many valuable players from that team um and i'm not trying to discredit you know isaiah and devon's and, and nigel's contributions to the program and how much they'll be missed but uh, when you lose the ACC Player of the Year and your best post player um, in a long time in Anthony Gill and then Mike Toby, um, and am I, I, I don't think I'm leaving anybody off, but those are the ones that come to mind off the top of my head. Um, I, I knew that that was going to hurt, you know, and, and I didn't know if they'd be able to get back there very soon. And I honestly think that if you want to make a case that these losses are indictments of the way that they play basketball, and I'm not making that case... I think that the Syracuse loss is much more damaging in that regard because the way that Syracuse beat them was they made UVA play uncomfortably fast. They pressed them. They they dared them to make layups, and everything fell apart. I mean, the the, the whole they started t- throwing the ball out of bounds, turning the ball over, missing easy shots. Uh, they weren't rotating. You know, they weren't getting out and covering shooters. Obviously, Malachi Richardson went off. Um, I think that loss is more indicative of maybe there being a problem with UVA being uncomfortable to play at a pace that's outside of their normal pattern. Um, this game, they just got their asses kicked from the start. Um, they could have played fast if they wanted to, but if Middle Tennessee State shoots 60% or whatever it was and 50% from three, and every runner that they shot bounced up off the rim a few times and, and seemed to drop, and UVA just kind of like panicked on offense. I don't think that's necessarily a system problem. That was just getting your asses kicked problem. Um, whereas Syracuse, that one kind of punched some holes in the in the philosophy. And that was a game that kind of made people wonder if they were going to change things up. But honestly, I think that, I mean, next year they'll, they'll be good again. Like uh, we'll be right back in the situation and hopefully, you know, they'll handle it better this time. But um I mean, stuff happens in March. That's what I always try to tell people. I, I, how many times have I said it on this podcast? You can put everything that, you know, you can put all your eggs in that basket as far as, like, how you judge a program. But, um, I mean, it's a, it's a fickle tournament 
I mean, teams get knocked out all the time. UVA is not the only team that had a really good season this year that saw it end early. Cincinnati won 30 games in their conference. They're out. Michigan State, a lot of people thought they were a national title contender. They're out. Arizona, dangerous team. They got blown out in the first round. So, I mean, this type of thing will continue to happen whether UVA breaks through or not. Um, and you kind of see it both ways. It's like now you are you kind of say, like, well, none of it matters until March. But at the same time, you know that March can go it, – it can go crazy really quickly. So you might want to just enjoy what's in front of you with the regular season. Um, I don't know. It's just, I guess it's just up to the individual fan how they want to handle it. One thing I do want to tackle, I had a chance to to um, to obviously to to do a whole podcast on Monday. Um, Phony Bennett and I had already talked about doing one. Uh, we um, we had uh, decided, you know what, we're just still going to do it. Um, why not? Uh, so I got a chance to talk about some of the things that I had thought of, at least in terms of potential tweaks or. Um, lessons you want to learn from this. I want to give you guys a chance to, to sort of share your own points of view. And Dave, we'll go back to you. Um, and even if you, you chime in with some of the stuff that Phony and I talked about, that's totally fine. We, we're not going to assume everybody listens to every word we say on, uh, on all these shows. But what's your, what's your, what are the things that are kind of standing out in your mind as to what you might want to see Virginia do maybe differently going forward? Not necessarily like wholesale changes, but even just small tweaks. What kind of things do you feel like are important for them um, as they sort of rebound, re- rebound from this and sort of move forward. I mean, if you'd asked me that question Saturday, I would have told you a lot different than I do now. I mean, um, you know, it, it took a while. It took took a little while to look at this game objectively. I think uh, just because of, of how raw it made me. But the, I mean, it, it'd be nice to have two DeAndre Hunters. I mean, it's you know he, we talked about it, you know, multiple times during the season. Just what he provided is what that te- what the team needed Friday night. You know, they got off to kind of shaky start, and that's what DeAndre had been so good at this year. He didn't have to score a lot. He just had this knack for for hitting that shot when you first came in. You know, when you first came in, usually just kind of get things on track, or you make a stop, or grab a rebound, or make a pass, um, and it seemed to kind of you know motivate the team. So, like I'm not, I don't think you have to throw out a lot. I don't think you need to change a lot. Um, Kind of like the article you had, like I think tweaks are fine, and I think if you look back at the season, we we had some tweaks. It's just with the personnel change with DeAndre being out, I think a lot of that went back to kind of the old school slower offense. Um, this year we ran a little more on on rebounds, we pushed a little more, we had a few more steals. Um, now, granted, th- those are things that are based off of kind of scramble offense, but. That's a you know that little bit of change was a was a significant change over what we had seen in the first few years of of the block remover offense. Um, so I, I think the block remover is fine; it, it can work. We you're you're not going to run another offense with with the pieces we have next year that is going to be you know connect with the defense and and be more efficient. I just think getting more guys who can create their own shots when the block remover doesn't generate a shot and as uh, Justin mentioned, and I believe it was our text thread. I don't think it was on a podcast. Um, they all start to blend together after a season. The, uh, you know, just taking that, just not being afraid to take that good open shot early in the offense. Because um, a lot of times, you know, the defenders aren't even reacting hard to the early screens and the block remover because they know we're going to pass up that shot 
more than likely, um, especially if we're in the lead. So I think it's a small tweak offensively. Um, you know, that's not why we lost the game Saturday. It, the, the other tweak I'd like to see small is Tony not being so, uh, I mean, I guess it's stubbornness, starting the same five in both halves. Because um, to me, like, the big lineup with Wilkins and Jack, um, you know, our, our normal starters, if you will, that was the worst lineup on the floor Friday night. And um, UMBC took advantage of it early, and you know, even with the butterflies. And then when they came out of the second half, that's, that's the lineup they did most of the damage to. Even with, uh, was it Wilkins that picked up the quick foul um, in the second half? I think it was Wilkins, not Hall. And they kind of went from there. I just wonder if we'd come out small to start the second half. Maybe they don't have that huge run that kind of, I mean, the game was essentially over by the under six, coming back from the under 16. So it's just little things. The, the defense is good. No one's good. We may not see another team shoot 23 of, what was it, 23 of 34 or something over the last 26 minutes. We may not see that again for the rest of Tony's career. It's just, it was a perfect storm. And once that started happening, you know, the guys did panic a little bit. They, they were taking some uncharacteristic shots. And if they hit those shots, that's fine. But if they don't, it just kind of adds on and adds on. And the, the worst thing about a lot of the shots they were taking is they were, they were kind of bad threes with long rebounds leading to runouts, um, allowing UMBC to get their momentum going. So <laughs> you don't win 31 games in a season with the bad system. Um, and I'm not going to throw it all out because you lost to a one versus 16. Because honestly, we'd be having the same conversation if they had beaten UMBC and lost to Kansas State. Well, we'd be having a similar conversation. I don't know if we'd have the same conversation. Well, you, I think you would because none of us really thought one versus you know one losing to 16 was that big a deal. You know, it's you know was that possible? Sorry, it was a huge deal, but none of us really <laughs> thought it was possible. But for for the Virginia fan, like not coming out of the first weekend was kind of what we we're talking about as worst case scenario. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with Dave. Um, and then if they had missed weight and UVA had lost that game, cause like once you beat the you're 16, right. you're like, all right, well that wasn't even, you know, that was easy. Like, so then the loss to Kansas state and those articles, I think still would have came if they had lost to Kansas state. I mean, if they lose to Kentucky, maybe not, but I think if they lost to Kansas state, you would have seen a lot of the same stuff. One thing that Dave said in there that I want to, I want to um, kind of, I don't know, pull out and talk about. Um, you were talking about um, they were taking bad shots, basically, and then that allowed runouts. I think one thing that has occurred to me is that most of the time when a team is down, they crash the offensive glass. And Virginia's never going to crash the offensive glass. That's just not a thing. And the more I've thought about that since Monday, since Friday, um, I, I'm definitely not going to say that Virginia should stop doing, um, that the Cavaliers should do something different because this is a thing that could happen to them and therefore they must be prepared. I think that's stupid. Um, I also think the people who are like, oh, it's never going to work because it hasn't worked are stupid. Because let's be honest, the same people... Well, it's, it's different people, people who are probably dead, said the same kind of stuff about Mike Krzyzewski. They said the same kind of stuff about Jimmy Beheim, right? Jim Beheim the other day took like one really good player, like well maybe two really good players, a D three transfer, and like a and like a and like a bu and like a bucket of like um, seeds, 
right? Like, no, I mean, whatever. And they beat a team with three future pros on it. How did they do that? They did that because they play a defensive style and their offense really sort of, um, their offense, even though it, it, it muddies the water, it, it can get an, it can get enough to get you there, right? They weren't like I think Ferber was it was on this too. Like they weren't like beautiful in doing it, right? I mean, like I, I think this idea that like all of a sudden Tony Bennett's system obviously can't win pretends like Jim Beheim doesn't exist. Like Jim Beheim hasn't won. You know what I'm saying? Like he's had success, and like I I, I bring up the point about the offensive glass because as much as I think Virginia has a system and the, and the Cavaliers have to stick to it. When 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 UMBC comes out in that second half and they score 17 points to Virginia's three over the first four minutes and eight seconds, okay? Like, I knew, like, you knew it was over because you just could not see a scenario where Virginia came back from from down uh, that many points, even in, in that, lim- that great amount of time. So I wonder if... I mean, it kind of goes back to like if you could if you could go back and do things differently. It it seemed like to me what Tony. I know a lot of people on the board were were really harsh on that. You know that he panicked, that he he didn't do enough, that he could have done things differently. What I saw him do was try to calm his guys down and then get them shots to get them going. In hindsight, if he maybe if he has you know a DeAndre Hunter, he can do things that uh, much differently. But aside from what clearing out guys and just ball screen to death with Nigel, what was he really going to do? Right. Um, the one thing that I think they should have done that they didn't do. And like I mentioned on Monday is like, they should have gotten the ball in the post. And if they had to live with a few misses from Jack Salt or from Dion, uh, Diakite or from, um, from, from Zay, you, you sort of have to live with it. Right. But I just wonder if, most teams, most teams have because their systems are different. They can come back from bigger deficits. It's not just about pace. Um, I think sometimes it's about what you're asking your guys on the floor to do. And I'm not saying that they need to change that. I'm certainly not going to say that. Well, you can play the pack line, but also don't worry about getting back in transition because that's kind of a big deal. Um, I just wonder if there aren't some things that they can do a little differently depending on the situation. Um, you know, like even when Georgia Tech gets down by three touchdowns, they can figure out how to throw the ball. Um, it might not be good, but they still do it. Um, Ferber, what do you think some some changes, some some things that you'd want to see um, Virginia maybe put in, not just in, for the situational, but also for the, maybe the, the long-term health of the team? Yeah, I mean, I saw a lot of people saying there was a lot going around about how the players seemed to panic, and I think that was pretty clear from the shot selection and uh, the defensive just like – they weren't all on a string like they normally are. Um, but I honestly, people have said, no, you know, Tony panicked. I think the opposite. I think Tony didn't panic. I think Tony, just like they have in the other games where they've been down, I think he was like, ah, they'll figure it out. Like, you know, like they, they'll work their way out of this. And he didn't panic until it was too late. And I think that is the biggest thing that needs to change. He, you know, th- there's a there's a lot said about, you know, how the team takes on the personality of their coach. And, and I think what he has done has helped them win a lot of these games. You know, he, he doesn't look panicked. You, know, you stick by the plan. The plan's going to work. Eventually, the the shots they're making, you know, they'll regress. That's just the way this thing works. Um, but I think on Friday night, it was pretty clear that whatever they were doing was not working on both ends of the floor. And he waited too late. I mean... UMBC came out really hot in that second half, and then by the time they kind of said, oh, crap, like we need to make some changes or do something different, it was too late. 
Um, and I know that he didn't have DeAndre Hunter, and that's a huge factor. Um, I, I don't know if that's a good excuse for them losing the game, but I think it would have been a different game if he played. Um, so what I would like to see different, I guess, is not – I don't want to do anything that impacts the defense adversely. Um, a lot of people want to see them speed it up, and I think you can do that, but you have to do it in a way that doesn't make the defense suffer because then it's like you're getting away from what you do. Um and what makes you so effective. Like Brad, you just mentioned, like they're not going to crash the boards. Like that just don't, won't work because they need to get back on defense. But I think that there can be a little bit more diversity in the offense. Instead of they run the same guys, like off the same kinds of screens, and it, it's tough to defend for sure. Um, but when those guys like aren't getting space and the, the defenders are, are well scouted, I mean, you've seen a few teams that have clearly scouted UVA's offense pretty well. Um, I think UMBC, I mean, it just didn't seem like UVA had a lot of space when they would get through those screens. There's a reason Kyle Guy, I think he only took two threes, right? Um, that never happens because he didn't really have any good looks. Um, I think that there needs to be more, like you said, kind of like guys that can go out and get theirs. And I think that helps you when things break down and allows you to have opportunities to kind of get a stop. And, and I, we've talked a lot about, uh, not necessarily on this podcast so much, but the way that UVA plays, the defense and the offense are so intertwined. I mean, people look at it as two different ends of the floor, but UVA's offense feeds on stops, and UVA's defense feeds on good, efficient offense. And you can see it. And when those things break down, it affects both ends of the floor. And I think that they need to be able to find ways to get out of those ruts quicker. Um because, I mean, UMBC did a great job of just making shots and getting in the lane, and they did a lot of things well, but if you're going to eventually slay the Dragon, get to a Final Four, win a championship, I mean, you're going to have to face teams that get hot and, and have you scouted and have good coaching, and um, those things are going to continue to happen. And obviously they happen too in the regular season, but that pressure of March definitely has an impact on the players when they look up at the scoreboard and they see they're down 14, and there is no tomorrow. Um, if you lose, you know, that's not the same as being down 13 or whatever at Florida State and thinking, ah, screw it, let's just go balls to the wall and come back. Um, you start to overthink things. You start to, you know, and I think sometimes, like Dave said, I mean, I've, I'm a big proponent of this. I think sometimes guys are so hesitant on offense because Tony demands such, like, I don't want to say he demands perfection from his players, but he demands a certain level of efficiency, attention to detail. Um, he wants the system to run the way it's designed to run. And I understand that that's what helped. I mean, you can't have people kind of going rogue and doing their own thing. We saw Nigel do it at times this year, and it didn't work. Um, but And other players have done it in the past. But um, and I think that's why you don't see guys like Jay Huff on the floor. I mean, part of his problem is defense, but... You know, and DeAndre didn't play last year because he just wanted guys that he trusts out there to to follow the system. And then I think sometimes it, what happens is guys pass up good shots for what ends up being an equal or worse shot later, um, because they're they're afraid to take the early shot and miss. And then it looks like they're not. It looks like they're being selfish or not running the system. Um, I mean, I've seen guys go to the rim and transition off a turnover and then pull it back out, and a lot of times it's been a good decision, but sometimes it's one-on-one. I mean, you're not going to get a much better look than a layup at the rim where you're either going to get fouled and possibly make it, or you're just going to make it. I mean, you might get blocked, but that's just as high of a percentage as any shot you're going to get later in the shot clock. Yeah, and 
you know, just to kind of heart back on one point in the the defense. I mean, to, I, mean I think we, we're spending just so much time talking about the offense because it's the easiest thing to see. Um, you know, and it was well out of sorts. But in not having DeAndre there was one thing. But and I kind of mentioned it earlier. But it just the fact that the team had to play. I think Devin only played like twenty eight minutes, maybe, and, and Isaiah twenty four, or vice versa. Um, I had to realize, like, that's a lot of time, a lot of minutes of arguably, if not inarguably, your three best defenders not on the floor um, against a team that's super hot. So it was, I think it was just a perfect storm. Um, and unfortunately, as Virginia fans, we were the ones that had to live with it forever. Yeah, I think Devin going out at like the 10 minute mark or whatever it was in the first half uh, was a bigger deal than people realized because. They were so stagnant the rest of the way on offense in the first half, and I think him not being out on the court did have an impact, especially when you can't replace him with DeAndre. Um, but, I mean, I think that definitely kind of and, – and that's, you know, we look at it in a vacuum now and they lost by 20, but we don't know how different the game could have been if they go into half up seven or, you know, down four. I mean, who knows? It could have been – you know, maybe UMBC goes into the half down six or seven points and they come out really, like, taking terrible shots and then they just miss a bunch of shots or they come out tighter or, you know, UVA's looser. Who knows? Like, you know, just you can play through all the scenarios in your head. But I think Devin being out for those last ten minutes of the first half was a pretty big impact on the game. Yeah, and having to replace Devin with Nigel, who, look, given the fact he kind of got dropped into the system for one year, he figured out how to play in the pack line as the season went on and definitely got better. But he's and still, he honestly he still looked more comfortable. Yeah. He looked more comfortable than a lot of the other players on the court during the game. Because yeah. I think he's used to playing a style of basketball that's like we don't have to rely on everything has to be so systematic, you know. He went out there and played. And I think sometimes that's been to the team's detriment. But it was interesting to kind of see that. Yeah, I mean you figure you've got uh Diakite and Johnson are essentially playing the twenty same amount of minutes of as Hall, Wilkins, and Salt. So I mean, you've got a very different lineup, and, and the guys who you know who who aren't used to playing in the system. That's what you know, not used to it, not used to being in the pressure that say the Devin and Isaiah, Devin Isaiah and Jack have have faced over their their time here at EVA. So tough night. Last thing on the <clears throat> on Friday night before we sort of switch gears, the Dave mentioned a second ago the idea of um, of of kind of the not only just in terms of personnel and um, you know that it was a perfect storm and not having um, DeAndre and then to Ferber's point the idea of of um, you know guys passing up shots I, if there's one thing that I that I kind of do hope comes from this it's that I feel like. As I've, as we've kind of had this conversation tonight, the more I've thought about it, um, I keep thinking that sometimes if you ever hear Tony when he talks about players, one of the first things he always says, I love his feel. I love his feel for the game. And I don't know if it's realistic to think that every kid he recruits is going to have a feel as high on the level, right? So like if it's, you know, the meter goes up to a hundred, you know, London Parantes, Ty Jerome, Malcolm Brogdon, they're super high up on that level. Um, but are, is everybody because to, to Ferber's point about guys kind of trying to take shots and then they kind of, it's like, 
there are times when, when the move that they're making is the right play. It will give them the good shot. But for whatever reason, they are hesitant at times. And that that is exponentially more so the case whenever somebody gets in foul trouble. You ever notice that? When Virginia's guys get in some foul trouble, all of a sudden everybody starts acting weird. It's like it's like everybody everybody took like some drug and all of a sudden nobody can walk straight. It's like folks like they're not, they're afraid of contact, they don't create contact, they they aren't playing, they they they're not as physical. Um, it's not just the guy who has the fouls, it's everybody. It's like it spreads, it's like a virus. You put those two things together and what you have is a hesitant bunch. And listen, I know that there are people out there who are listening to this and they're probably cussing us because they're like, you know, there are a lot of people who have sort of rallied around the flag and understandably so. But I think anybody who anybody who loses a game when you're 20 some point favorite and you lose by 20, you sort of open yourself up to some some form of criticism. And we're not we're not we don't have hatchets out. These are not hot takes. We're what we're essentially talking about are what are some ways to for the team to be better? There's no doubt that that this team was extremely good at being exactly who it is. All we're saying is is that there are some things, especially for a group whose mo- most of this talent on this roster is offensive minded. It got its energy from its offense. That's one of the main reasons why when they had it really cooking this year is when they were really efficient. When they when they had those assist numbers up, the defense was crazy good. Um, there were definitely some games where where their defense carried them, but man, more often than not, it was a it was a a symbiotic sort of relationship. And the more I think about it, the more I think like these guys have to be comfortable in what they're doing. And when I say comfortable, I don't mean just understanding it, right? Yeah, you take time to understand the pack line, take time to understand blocker mover. But like comfortable in terms of like, if I have an opportunity, I should take it because this shot by me is the best shot we're going to get. Because otherwise, now you got dudes trying to drop pocket passes and wrap it around. And like, that's just not who they are. Sometimes they're un- they're so unselfish that it becomes a detriment. And I feel like that it definitely was a thing at times this season and certainly in this game too. Um, I'm going to open it up one more time to to talk about this game before we sort of move on. Ferber, Dave, anything else? Yeah, I mean, I I think I just, you know, agree with what you said. I think sometimes that is the downside to having a team that kind of is so unselfish that they defer to each other so much that when the moment gets big, I think sometimes everybody's kind of like, well, I'm not going to make it all about me, you know, and try to go get a bunch of points because we can run our offense. And eventually everybody starts kind of deferring to each other. And I think they do have at least two guys on this roster um, that are not wired that way in Jerome and Guy. And I think that um, DeAndre is probably pretty similar as well. And I think that bodes well for the future. Um, the last thing I really want to say is that, uh, I mean, obviously everybody will remember this how they want to remember it. Uh, it was a great season. Um, they did a lot of good things. They weren't just a really good team. They were the best team in college basketball during the regular season. Um, I mean, they were the number one overall seed by with ease. Um, th- don't take that sort of stuff for granted. I mean, I know that this hurts for now, but I never thought, you know, growing up that UVA would lose to a 16 seed because I never thought they'd be a one, you know? So... I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, we've, we've, we've suggested or whatever, you know, vented some small changes that we think could maybe help. But if they change nothing, they'll still have a good chance next year or the year after that to be good um, and, you know, make this work. And I have faith that um, the core of Guy, Jerome, and Hunter will come back next year even better. And hopefully this will motivate them. Um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of they don't shy away from this. Instead, they try to use it as motivation, and I think that might be the best thing. Yeah, at the risk of sounding like too ridiculous, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm most sad that Isaiah Wilkins and Devin Hall's last moment in a Virginia uniform is going to be that one, because I think they both were so instrumental in what we what the program's been the last four plus years. Um, what Devin did coming in is thinking he was going to, you know, be able to to play right away, and you know, we all can assume he thought he was going to play right away coming in. You know, reclassifying, coming in Virginia, and then having to redshirt a year, and you know, being on the bench during that first ACC title run. To you know, and going from an athlete who played basketball to a very, very, very good basketball player by a senior year, it sucks. Is my last memory is going to be foul trouble and and not seeing him. Um, and Wilkins, like his last couple of shots as a Virginia player, are going to be, you know, two very uncharacteristic jump shots from three. Um, so. You know, I'm hoping as the wounds heal, we can kind of appreciate what they did for the program. And I'll leave, I'll leave it at that, the sappiness. Um, we're, we're 45 minutes in, so we're not going to have a, the fifth uh, side of the ball this week. Uh, before, I, I do want to talk real quickly about spring football um, because I do think we, we should. Um, but I do want to mention Ron Sanchez taking the, the job at Charlotte and the, the changing of, of, of the guard. I think when Richie took the job at Liberty – there was certainly a change, but Ron Sanchez has been with Tony Bennett as long as Tony Bennett's been a head coach. And so um, I, I do at least want to mention that, uh, that, that that's a significant thing in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of really poor timing. I mean, it certainly seems like to me that, um, that the Charlotte thing was, was, was in the works, um, you know, before. You know, I don't think this all happened within, you know, 48 hours of, of UVA losing. Um, you know, I think that that was one of those deals where basically you wait till, till the season is over and then you, you, you make the announcement. Um, so it is, it does, it is super unfortunate that it came when it did, but you know, I, I've had a chance to get to know Ron over the years. He's a, he's a great guy. Virginia's really going to miss him, not just in the sense of recruiting, not just in the sense of X's and O's, but he's a really good person. And I happened to, uh, to be standing on the court pregame at, um, at the Barclays Center before the ACC tournament championship game. And, and I talked to him for a few minutes and I, um, I asked him, you know, I jokingly said something to him to the effect of like, so, you know, when you, when you, when are you going to get a head coaching job and, and get out of here? Um, and he, he laughed and said he was really happy that he legitimately loved where he worked, that it would have to be the right opportunity um, because he, he genuinely loved coming to work. And he said, the thing that makes this staff special is that they can sit around in a, in a, in a meeting room and just have at it that nobody has to hold any punches. Nobody has to be worried about pissing anybody off. Nobody has to be worried that they can't say this thing because so-and-so is going to get upset and they're, it's going to, you know, it's going to be something that, uh, you know, that sticks with them for, you know, a week, you know, that they have such a rapport, uh, with each other, um, uh, about everything that they can just, they can say what they feel. Um, I'm not sure where Tony goes, to, to fill that spot, but I think it's going to be really difficult for them to find that sort of person. And considering um, the way that I'm sure that they feel like they're under attack a little bit um, from from the outside after after last Friday night, um, it's it's a crucial hire. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so I think that that's going to be super interesting, especially if if Jason ends up getting a head coaching job as well. Um, you know, I think, like I said, it's it really stinks that 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 Ron's opportunity the one he decided to jump on, the one he liked the most came when it did. But, you know, best of luck to him. And I hope, uh, 
you know, I hope Virginia never plays them. <laughs> so let's uh, let's transition over to um, to spring football, which I know is a is a hard thing for folks um, because we're we've been talking basketball for so long and um, and uh, you know it's it's one of those deals where uh, you didn't expect to be talking football right now, so you you're not sure how to. Um, I, I wrote a piece for the for the site uh, this afternoon, focusing on some storylines to watch. I'm curious to get your kind of opinions on what things you're watching. Uh, I just want to take quarterback off the table because that's a no-brainer. But besides QB one and the play of the quarterbacks and and what the um, and what the offense sort of looks like, Ferber, let's start with you. What sort of things are you interested in seeing and learning about this spring? Yeah, I mean it's kind of tough to focus on the line play because in spring football you can only see so much. Yeah, it's not like live football really. Um, the defensive line, obviously, you know, you lose Andrew, you you lose Moye uh, to suspension or whatever you want to call it, um, and you have to kind of pick up the pieces and come back with a new group. So I'm I'm excited to see kind of how they put that together and, and if it can be effective. Obviously, Mandy Alonso kind of came on late last year, so it'll be interesting to see if he can kind of carry that over. Um, on the other side of the ball, uh, obviously, the offensive line is still a question mark. Um, regardless of who's been brought back or not, just because the play has been up and down. And obviously they've tried to build up the depth there and get things to where they want it to be. Um, but it's still a work in progress. I'm kind of interested to see, um, you know, in the secondary, how that all shakes out. Uh, Tim Harris, like, where does he stand? Is, is he going to, is he going to be somebody that slides into a starting role or is he going to be kind of the third cornerback now? Um, that we have two guys established in those positions, and and then obviously you he replaced you know Micah Kaiser, Quinn Blanding, um, two guys at the at the heart of the defense that uh, are obviously going to be tough to replace. And I think for Kaiser, you know, you have some some easy targets as as to who those people can be. But with Blanding, I mean Joey Blunt, I guess would be the the leader in the clubhouse. But um, it'll be interesting to see how they those pieces fit together and and. Uh, you know, if that leads to any kind of a drop off in play, or you know, like uh, who's calling out the defense, that sort of thing. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how Bronco puts that all together with the uh, uh, with the absence of some guys that have been, you know, big part of the defense for the last few years. Yeah, that's a you know, you you bring up that question. I saw the the Jeff White story on Joy Blunt, and I got to be honest, like like does anybody? Okay, let me ask this as a question, and you, and Dave, you can answer it. Do, do you really think that? that Tim Harris is not going to be a starter, that they're not going to move Thornhill back to safety and let him play free safety? Or, like, am, am I wrong in thinking that it's going to be Hall and Harris in the corners and Thornhill and, and Nelson and Blunt backs up one of those guys or maybe there's some sort of rotation? Like, does anybody really think that, like, Tim Harris is going to come back for his sixth year and he's not going to be a the guy? Like, yeah, I mean, I, it, I think it's semantics, to be honest with you. I mean, we're going to be in a in some sort of nickel or dom coverage more often than not. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so, you know, Blunt is probably the long-term solution at free safety. So, um, you know, Harris isn't going to come back and run that. And then, so my guess is Thornhill is going to kind of pl- play like that hybrid role. Harris will be the true corner when they go nickel. And, you know, uh, Thornhill will kind of come up and into the box when he needs to. So, yeah, I don't I don't make much too, too much of it. So what other things are, are as we're on the brink of, yeah. of spring ball, what other things are you looking for? I mean, basically all what Justin said, but, you know, the big thing with spring ball, see, not to be the pessimist, but see who's out there and who's not because, you know, this, 
it's not on you, not unheard of to see a couple guys not show up at spring practice and find out they're no longer on the roster. Um, and for a, you know, a, a team with a pretty, pretty big turnover on the defensive line and needing to, uh, to bulk up an offensive line, I'll be looking to see who's healthy, who's out there. Um, like Justin says, hard to tell a whole lot as far as progression, but we did see, um, you know, not personally didn't see it, but we, we heard reports of, you know, different defensive fronts last year. So I think we'll get an idea of what Broncos thinking defensively with the pieces he has. If, if you're telling us about a lot of two man fronts you saw and, you know, three man or, or maybe we're playing some kind of wacky defense. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that's the obvious stuff. Who's, who's replacing Micah? How do the offensive linemen look? Um, and then does Ellis remain the starting running back? That's kind of what I'm curious to see. I had not thought about the running back situation until you just said that. That's interesting. I think I'm also really curious to see who the other – I mean, like I think we all assume that, that they have a really nice stable of, of, of defensive backs to replace Quinn. They've got a nice group at linebacker, right? So Jordan Mack stays inside. You've, you've, you've got some in- interesting options with Chris Peace and Malcolm Cook back, as well as Snowden and, and Brown. Um, who's going to be the other inside linebacker? Um, that, I, I mean, C.J. Stalker was, was chosen as one of the um, squad leaders, um, so I'm not sure if that translates necessarily to PT or what, but, I mean, you know, he's still there. Um, and I, for a guy who came in pretty highly touted to, to have the, the sort of um, career he's had from scrimmage, um, one would think that maybe the, that this would be the the year and the opportunity, but um, yeah, let's and, not and forget that. Sorry, let's, no, let's not say, forget that Broncos' you know main defense is a three three five. This might be the year he goes back to it. Yeah, I, I think that's actually really possible. Um, but my problem with that is, I, I just think that his he 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 seems to he seems to be a guy who leans who leans to whichever way his strengths are, and I think he wants to get those all those linebackers on the floor. I mean, on the field. Wow, I'm still stuck in basketball mode. I mean, you know what I mean? Like he, yeah, it makes sense to go three three, but I, I don't know if that stat. I, I just think that he might want to get the extra linebacker on the field, give him that versatility. I, I mean, quite honestly, like I could totally see him going to some sort of weird uh, two man front with uh, with four linebackers and then stay in that. You know what I mean? Like, and he's and this might be a team that he's basically built for the nickel. You know, if you if you carve out that role, but. Should be interesting. Um, hopefully, by the time—well, maybe not by the time this this, this uh, podcast posts—I should have some information back from UVA in terms of access that we'll have um, for next year. But uh, I think that's a good place to put a pin. In. You guys got anything else for the good of the order? Uh, well, there'll be a new quarterback, whether you want to talk about it or not. No, I just—I <laughs> so started the whole process with saying I didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, I got you. I mean, we we've talked about quarterback for probably a combined of the however many podcasts there are. There's probably eighty total podcasts <laughs> just about quarterback so yeah i, I get i got you on that yeah uh, uh breaking news uh, break uh, all caps breaking uh there will be a quarterback uh change um but again i want to thank everybody out there for continuing to support the show if you found the show uh via the website i really do appreciate you continuing to to, to listen um fire up the uh, podcast app on your phone uh, go to itunes give us a review it always helps if you found uh the podcast via um, iTunes, um, give us a look uh, at Cavs Corner. A lot of information, and, and Ferber writes a lot of words. So you would like 
you know, you would probably enjoy reading them. Um, Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. Uh, But again, uh, I want to thank Dave and Justin for giving graciously of their time as always. I greatly appreciate it. So again, uh, for David Spence, Justin Ferber, and Brad Franklin, publisher of CavsCorner.com. Thanks for coming out. We'll see you soon.